a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. The following Bible study is a study I've shared with the Standing Firm Bible Study class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. If you're not involved in a Sunday morning Bible study group, we would love it. We'd be thrilled for you to join us this Sunday. We meet in room 216. It's in the Family Life Center every Sunday morning, 10:15 a.m. You can find more information, including ways to contact us by going to AboundingJoy.com, clicking on Standing Firm Bible Study Class, and you'll learn more about us. It might help you to take a screenshot of the screen right now. I'm glad you joined the Bible study today. I'm praying that the Lord will use it to help you stand firm in His Word and be more like Jesus. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. There are two books in the Bible that are named after women. Do you remember which two they are? Yes, Ruth and Esther. And both books are amazing records of the wonderful providence of God. As you read the books and you think about what you're reading, you're struck again and again at how amazingly God providentially put together circumstances in the lives of these women in order to carry out his plan, his purpose, to bring himself a lot of glory. (laughs) It's just exciting and amazing when you read it. It's very emotional. And today we're looking at the book of Ruth. It's found in our Bibles immediately between the books of Judges and 1 Samuel, if you need help finding it, close to the beginning of the Bible, eighth book, I guess. And we're immediately told in verse 1 that these events happened during the period of the Judges. We looked at the book of Judges last time. So that means it could have happened anywhere between 1375 B.C. and maybe about 1011 B.C. when Samuel died. At the end of the book, we read that Ruth was the great-grandmother of King David. And David was born probably around 1040 B.C. So a reasonable guess about the date of the book would be maybe 1130 or 1140 B.C. when these things happened. The book of Ruth gives us the important account of the lives of two women, Naomi and her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth. So let's just jump right in and begin reading at chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Ephrath sounds a little weird to our ears, but uh, sometimes it's given, by the way, in the Bible as Ephrathah. Ephrath or Ephrathah was an ancient name for the city of Bethlehem, the town of Bethlehem. Of course, Bethlehem is very significant to us. I don't have to tell you about Bethlehem. In Genesis 35, we learn that Rachel was buried there after she died during the birth of Benjamin. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath. That's Bethlehem. God tells us clearly there in Genesis 35. In 1 Samuel, we read, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. Again, you see the word Ephrathite there as a description of who David was from Bethlehem. When the prophet Micah, God used Micah, remember, to prophesy where the Messiah would be born. This comes into the New Testament very clearly. But anyway, Micah wrote, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, there it is again, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. He's going to be the Messiah. He's going to come from Bethlehem, be born in Bethlehem. Here's a relief map of the area we're talking about. Here's Bethlehem. Bethlehem is about five miles south of Jerusalem. So in order to get to Moab, Elimelech would have had to take his family from Bethlehem to Jerusalem and then down this treacherous road to Jericho across the Jordan River and then on farther south down into Moab. It was only about 45 or 50 miles from Bethlehem to Jericho, but when you look at the terrain, it was not an easy 45 or 50 miles. Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho is over 800 feet below sea level. It's at the north end of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, you may remember, is the lowest place on the face of the earth. It's about 1,400 feet below sea level. So it's a very difficult journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem down to Jericho and then on further south after crossing the Jordan River into Moab. We also need to remember that normally the Jews did not have fond thoughts about Moab and the Moabites. The Moabites, you may remember, were the people who hired Balaam to try to bring a curse on Israel when Moses was leading them toward the promised land. You remember that? The Moabites refused to let Israel peacefully pass through their territory. You can read the account of that confrontation in Numbers if you want to. It's chapters 22 and 23 and 24. We don't have time to go there now. Later on, in the time of the judges, Moab attacked Israel and actually controlled Israel for an 18-year period until God used a man named Ehud to defeat them. We talked a little bit about him last week, you may remember. And then later on after that, King Saul, and then later after him, King David, and then later after him, Kings Joram and Jeroboam all had to fight the Moabites. And even later, the Moabites actually sided with Babylon when Nebuchadnezzar came up against Jerusalem. So the Moabites were a thorn in the sides of the, of the Israelites over and over and over. The Moabites had a false god. His name was Chemosh. He was an awful god. And the Moabites felt that sometimes they had to offer human sacrifices to appease their god Chemosh. If I could chase a rabbit here just for a few minutes, it won't take long here, but one of the great modern archaeological discoveries was an ancient stele called the Moabite Stone. It's also called the Misha Stele. It's one of the things I share with the Warriors of Christ class in, my, in, our, in, in our class at Cross Creek. But here's a picture of the Moabite Stone. Today it resides in the Louvre Museum in Paris, France. But archaeologists have determined that it was created around 840 years before the birth of Christ, 840 B.C., and here you can see a little part of the inscription a little more closely. So you can see the writing was preserved very well so they could read it. And the Moabite stone contains some fascinating information. After they were able to translate it, they found it was talking about a king of Moab, whose name was Mishah. And interestingly, we read about Mishah in the Bible. It's in 2 Kings chapter 3. And the writing on that stone says that he came up against Israel. And of course, we read about that in the Bible too. And the writing on the stone mentioned the name of the king of Israel who established the, the dynasty that was in power at that time. That would have been King Omri. Of course, we read about King Omri in the Bible. You may remember he was the father of that very infamous king, Ahab. Remember Ahab, the husband of Jezebel, <laughs> wicked Jezebel? You remember that account? We read all about that in the Bible. That stone also mentions the house of David. Isn't that interesting? And of course, David was the second king of Israel who had been 
king of Israel earlier before it divided into the two different kingdoms. The Moabite stone also mentions the name of 12 towns that Israel and Moab were fighting over. All these towns are mentioned in the Bible. They're all in that place mentioned in the Bible. Stone mentions the name of the god of the Moabites, Chemosh. And of course, the Bible refers to Chemosh several times as the god of the Moabites. The stone even mentions the name of the true God, Yahweh. Isn't that fascinating? Of course, that's the primary Hebrew name of God that God gives himself in the Bible. And scholars say, by the way, that as far as they can tell, it's the earliest reference outside the Bible, of course, that, that we have to God by his name, Yahweh. Now, when they discovered the Moabite stone, that was a fascinating and exciting discovery for people who know and believe the Bible. We already knew these things were true, But for those who were saying, oh, all that stuff in the Bible, it's not really history. It's just mythology. It's just made up stories. Well, it turns out to be real history. (laughs) Archaeologists, God has used archaeologists over and over again to show that the biblical accounts are not mythical stories. The Bible tells us about real people, real places, real historical events. And God used archaeology to kind of uncover some of those things. But obviously, even though Moab and Israel were often at war, they were not constantly at war. And there were times of peace between Moab and Israel. And and that was true during the time of the judges that we're looking at right now. Some might argue that Elimelech should not have taken his family to Moab at all in the first place. And they've got a point. I mean, God did give Israel and Israelites the promised land, not Moab. But to give Elimelech a little benefit of a doubt, there was a famine. And he wanted to take care of his family. So if word had come to Elimelech that there was food down in Moab, maybe it made some sense for him to say, I'm I'm going to try to keep my family from starving. We're going to have to leave the land for a while and go to Moab. But as we read, we learn that things did not go well for them there. So let's read on. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malan and Kilion died, so that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, it's hard for us to imagine how awful a situation this would have been for Naomi. A woman in those days desperately needed support from her husband or her sons or her extended family. But Naomi's husband is dead and her sons are dead. And she's far away from any other family she might have had. Been there, been away for years now. But verse 6 says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So Naomi has learned that there's food now back closer to her people, people who may be part of her extended family. It's been 10 years, but she assumes she's still got some family there. And she decides the wisest thing for her is to release her daughters-in-law to go find new husbands back in Moab 
while she returns alone back to Bethlehem. And at first, both Ruth and Orpah argue with Naomi. They obviously feel some strong attachment to her. They've grown very close. And so in verse 10, it says, They said to her, No, we'll return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So Naomi's giving her reason for sending the girls back to their parents. She can't offer them any more sons. You know where she's coming from here, right? In those days... If a woman became a widow while she was young, if her dead husband had an unmarried brother, it was common and expected that that brother would take her as his wife so she could be cared for and and he could have children in his brother's name. The family name could go on. If he didn't have an unmarried brother, an unmarried cousin would do. An extended family member would work, and it was called leveret marriage. You can read all about it in Deuteronomy 25. Actually, the word leveret itself is not found in the Bible. We call it leveret marriage, but it comes from a Latin word, which literally just means husband's brother or brother-in-law. So Naomi knows she can't have any more sons. And after all this time, she assumes she doesn't have any more relatives who could take Ruth or Orpah for a wife. Although, as we'll see, she's wrong about that. Anyway, Orpah decides Naomi's probably right. So Orpah leaves and presumably goes back to her parents to stay in Moab. Verse 14, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she, Naomi, said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But no, not Ruth. (laughs) It's at this point that Ruth utters the most beautiful and most famous words from the book of Ruth. And they are really beautiful. Look at verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? May the Lord do so to me and also more, if anything but death parts me from you. It's an awesome passage of commitment. Where have you heard those words before? You're familiar with those words, aren't you? Where have you heard them before? (laughs) You had a wedding. Aren't they perfect words for a wedding? I mean, I know a wedding is not the context here in the Bible, but they fit so well and they're so beautiful. Don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. (laughs) I feel like my wife, Vicki, epitomized the sentiment of this passage, uh, the sentiment of Ruth when she agreed to leave her home state of Texas, where she'd lived all her life, and move to Tennessee with me. That was about 23 years ago at this point, but uh, I, I feel that sentiment in her. And so, even though Ruth is a Moabite woman, and the Moabites were worshipers of the god Chemosh, Ruth decided to leave all that behind and become a follower of Yahweh. This is her conversion experience here. God meant for his people, the Israelites, 
to spread his fame to the other nations. He wanted people to hear about him through Israel. He called Israel to be a special chosen people, but he didn't intend for them to keep the truth about him just to themselves. And we have to assume here that somehow Naomi, by her life and by her words, has convinced Ruth that Naomi knew the true God. And Ruth was ready to commit her life to Yahweh, the true God. It's exciting. So Naomi and Ruth make the very difficult trip back to Bethlehem together. Let's pick it up in verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now the barley harvest happened then in the early spring, came earlier than the wheat harvest. You may remember the Feast of the First Fruits involved offering a wave offering of a sheaf of barley to the Lord on the first day of the week after the Passover. It was like first fruits. That was during the Passover, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread on a Sabbath. By the way, it points exactly to the resurrection of Jesus. That wave offering pictures the resurrection of Jesus because he was raised on the first day of the week after his crucifixion on the Passover. Remember that? Yeah, beautiful picture here. That's when they're getting back. That's the time of the year, Passover time. Chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. (laughs) First of all, notice that although Ruth and Naomi were poor, Ruth was not lazy. She's willing to go do the work of gleaning. It was hard work. It was part of God's law that poor people could follow the reapers in the fields and pick up the grain that was left behind by the reapers. In Leviticus chapter 19, God instructed Israel to remember the poor When they harvest their crops, this is what he said. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Notice God did not tell the owners, You harvest all the crop and then you give part of it to poor people. He said, no, just leave part of it so the poor people can do the hard work of gleaning. God commands and God honors hard work. He wanted people who owned the fields to be generous, but he wanted the poor to have to work for what they got. Here's more of the providence of God. You see it there in verse 3? She happened to come. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. This was not an accident. In verse 4, God gives us a glimpse of the kind of man Boaz was. Look at it. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. (laughs) What we see here is that even during the time of the judges, when every man was doing what was right in his own eyes, remember there's a whole lot of lawlessness going on during the time of judges, a lot of awful stuff. But there were some who kept their focus on the Lord. And in God's showing us here what kind of man Boaz was. He had a good relationship with his reapers, and they're greeting each other in the name of the Lord. Then Boaz just happened (laughs) to notice Ruth. Again, we see the providence of God at work. Verse 5, then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? 
And the servant who was in charge of the reefers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. She's a hard worker. <laughs> now notice how God gives Boaz an attraction toward Ruth. And this protective spirit's already toward her. He's beginning to provide for her. He reveals here that he's heard her story. He admires the fact that she has is converted to worship Yahweh. He admires her commitment to Naomi, and he certainly admires her work ethic. Let's read on, verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord, Yahweh, repaid you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel." Listen, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Beautiful metaphor. You see that phrase, under God's wings? It reminds us of God's protection, of course, and his provision. And we're going to see this word again in this beautiful little book of Ruth. Here, We're going to get to it in a minute. The psalmist used this metaphor several times. I won't look at all of them, but for example, in Psalm 91, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. So it's a metaphor God uses to show us his protective power and his provisions. After this, Boaz feeds her and gives her wine from his table. Then he gives his reaper's instructions to leave some extra sheaves for her to pick up. And we're going to pick up the narrative in verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah. There are different opinions about how much an ephah was. The best guess seems to be about half a bushel of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. <laughs> Whoa, Boaz. Now the light comes on for Naomi. Verse 20, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now the word translated redeemer here is sometimes translated close relative. Sometimes it's translated kinsman redeemer. The Hebrew, you may have heard this Hebrew word. It's goel, goel. In Hebrew law, a goel could purchase the freedom of an Israelite out of slavery, redeem them. He was also, by the way, the one responsible to execute justice if a family member was killed, for example. And of course, he was the one who would marry a widow whose husband died without children, a goel. He's a redeemer. He's a rescuer. And you can see where this points, can't you? He's pointing us to our great redeemer, our rescuer, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Verse 21, And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they've finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So Naomi realizes that Boaz is being drawn to Ruth. That's obvious. She's seeing the providence of God at work here. And Naomi decides we need to nudge him on just a little bit. So she comes up with a plan and we can read it in chapter three, verse one. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. In other words, get yourself cleaned up now, Ruth, and get yourself to smelling good and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. I don't know about you, but in our day, it sounds to me, this sounds like really something foolish, doesn't it? It's kind of dangerous to send Ruth to do that. It sounds like she's deliberately tempting Boaz to take advantage of Ruth. But I don't think that's really what's happening. I think both Naomi and Ruth know by now at this point, Boaz is a very godly man. And this is their way of letting him know they're serious about a proposal for marriage. That's what they're doing. And so in verse five, she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, remember, Boaz commended her for taking refuge in Yahweh and allowing God to spread his wings over her. And she's saying, yes, and Boaz, I want you to spread your wings over me too. (laughs) What's Ruth saying? She's using the same metaphor of wings of protection and wings of provision. She's making a marriage proposal to Boaz. She's saying, Boaz, marry me. Spread your wings over me. It's her way of saying, take me under your protection. By the way, God uses this metaphor more than once in the Bible. In Ezekiel chapter 16, he uses it a metaphor for his relationship with the nation of Israel. He said, when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was a time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you. and You became mine, says the Lord God. He uses that imagery more than once. Jesus used it. Remember in the New Testament when he looked at Jerusalem, he said, I would have gathered you under my wings like a, like a, like a hen with her chicks. Anyway, in verse 10, Boaz is obviously happy about this idea. (laughs) But there is a problem. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first in that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. But look at verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. 
And our reaction, we read this, is, what? what? You've got to be kidding. Surely not. You mean they might not get married after all? This is a terrible turn of events here. So, so Boaz gives Ruth some extra grain and he sends her back to Naomi. But look at what Naomi said, verse 18. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So she tells Ruth, just be patient, Ruth. We'll see what happens. But she knows the heart of Ruth and she knows the heart of Boaz. And I think she thinks she can see the providence of God at work here. She knows Boaz is not going to delay in getting this thing settled. So let's just read on in chapter four. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. He wanted plenty of witnesses. Verse 3, then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. <laughs> and we think, oh, no, this ruins everything. <laughs> but, but Boaz is not done. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Ha ha. <laughs> then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, or I cannot redeem it. It's probably implied that the man maybe had adult sons who had received their inheritance. And if he had more children by Ruth that would water down their share of the inheritance, he just wasn't willing to do it. Verse 7, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, your witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. And also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, to which we might add, David, who on his human side was the father of the Messiah. So God put this wonderful little book in his word, and the account of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and little Obed reminds us that even during lawless times, the lawless time of the judges in this case, God had people who were faithful to him and God had a plan. And even in lawless times, like the times they were living in, like the times we're living in today, there's always a remnant of God's people, 
always. And God will always work providentially through his remnant. Someday we'll look back on, on, on everything and understand it all very well. But this little book is given to us by the Lord to encourage his people. There'll be times, and we may be right there right now, when everything looks dark and everything looks pretty hopeless. But God is always at work. Remember that little song we sing sometimes in our choir? Even when I don't see him, he's working. Even when I don't feel him, he's working. He never stops. He never stops working. And all God's people said, <laughs> amen. Yes, what a beautiful story. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for putting this incredible little book in your word. It brings tears to our eyes when we read it. And it reminds us that you are God and you are in control. Even when times look bad, even in difficult, painful situations that seem almost impossible, like Naomi was in there when she was down there in Moab after her husband and her sons had died far away from her people. Lord, you had a plan, you had a purpose, and you carried it out by your providential guidance. You just handled everything. And so, Lord, we're amazed and we're thankful, and it just reminds you of what an awesome God you are. And it reminds us that when we get in our worst circumstances, we don't have anything to be afraid of. You're still working. You're still in charge. You're going to carry out your plans for our lives. You're going to get glory if we'll just turn to you and look to you and let you. So we pray that you do that. Get glory through us any way you choose. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.